This is the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Sarah Trino. You'd be hard-pressed to have missed the headlines over the last couple of years when it comes to urgent issues surrounding global food supplies. Climate change, along with pressures caused by the conflict in Ukraine, have left many nations vulnerable to food insecurity. In Zimbabwe, maize production, which is a key staple, plummeted by 43% this year. The country is now seeking to import the crop, as well as looking for alternative sources of wheat. We planted a sizable maize crop, as well as sorghum and millet. But we got nothing from the maize. It was scorched after there was no rain for three months. In a few hours, a coordination centre for Ukrainian grain exports will be opened in Turkey. It's part of the UN broker deal to get supplies moving after the war with Russia cut them off. The halt to grain deliveries has seen prices rise. These families have trekked for days across a hostile wilderness in search of food. The crowded outskirts of Dolo, a border town where some help is at hand. Really very severely malnourished. Drought brought on by the effects of climate change could displace as many as 700 million people by the end of this decade. This is no more acutely being felt than in southern Madagascar, where years of failed rains... Climate change, COVID, supply chain shocks and more. The way we produce and consume our food is hitting the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Although global food production nearly quadrupled over the last 60 years, more people than ever are going hungry. So, what are the underlying global food systems we all rely on? We'll be hearing from experts, from farmers, and from those working to improve public health, from Nigeria to Mozambique and the Kingdom of Tonga. We'll hear just how complex global food systems are, how technology could transform farming, and how recent global shocks have laid bare the underlying fragility in the way we produce and consume our food. I think we need very clear roadmaps on how food systems will transform what food will be grown how it will be grown but importantly those cannot be national policies that just say oh we don't have to worry because we import all of our food first and foremost is a need for recognition and acceptance that the business as usual is not acceptable we need more food and we need better quality, more nutritious food. Climate change is real in the Pacific. I mean, we grapple with this day in, day out. And the recognition between climate change, food, health, is at the forefront of um, national consideration. Agriculture is no more backwreaking. I can now apply engineering. I can now apply data science. I can now apply artificial intelligence. That's all in the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. Okay, sure. Yeah, my name is Claudia Ringler and I'm a senior research fellow with the International Food Policy Research Institute, CJR, which is our umbrella group, is the world's largest international ag research or agriculture innovation system um, globally with a focus on low and middle income countries. So, Claudia, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, Let's start right at the beginning. What do we actually mean when we talk about the global food system? That is a very good question. And it's surprisingly not so easy to answer because it kind of depends on who you are and where you are and what perspective you take. You know, each person basically lives within his or her food system. 
So, you know, my food system, I would say, is you know, all the food that I might uh, produce myself. Seeing I have like some tomatoes that I'm growing in the summer. And of course, I go to the supermarket. I might be seeing some advertisement on television. I go to restaurants and, and so forth. I you know have access to some recipes online, might be doing some cooking. So that's my food system. But of course, you know, globally, from a more regional, global, national perspective, food systems again look very different. So we take a global perspective, on the other hand, you know, we have a certain uh, amount of food that's being produced annually across the globe, where we have some countries that produce more food. Uh, then they consume. So they are food exporters. Let's say Latin America, Brazil stands out here. And then we have so-called net food importers. Those are countries that do not produce enough food uh, for their national populations, largely countries in North Africa, West Asia countries, you know, that simply do not have water, land or other resources to grow enough food for, for their own populations. But there's also countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, their productivity is not high enough to produce the food they would need for their populations and parts of East Asia, let's say China, again, they do not have uh, enough land resources and, and water resources to grow the food. But now if we move to a person in Sub-Saharan Africa, again, let's say maybe a country now, yet another scale, let's say Mozambique. So there we have a country, you know, that is considered to be food insecure. Uh, let's say a rural person might be a, a producer of food. Let's say she has to, to get inputs for her farm. Uh, she's getting seeds, might have some challenges getting credit to, to procure fertilizer, or there might just be no fertilizer to be had. Uh, producing the food might have to sell to a farm gate middleman, middle person who's then you know transporting the food to a market, maybe a medium-sized city and then again you know there's there are other consumers uh, and, and purchases of that food so the food system of the farmer you know again looks quite different uh, from from the food system that i see or let's say from a global perspective and from a country perspective again there's many farmers especially in a country like mozambique agriculture is generally still you know the largest employer but despite that uh, there is a shortage of some inputs there's a shortage of a diversity of affordable foods there's not that many you know retail retailers out there so you can't just step into a supermarket and and buy strawberries or or other products so you have less diversity you often face higher food prices at least compared to the income that you make um, and so that's your food system it's interesting that claudia used mozambique as an example I'd actually just caught up with Gladys Tazan. She's the manager at Jacaranda, a banana farm in Mozambique. She explained to me just how important jobs in food production are for the local economy. I will walk now here through a path in the farm. The normal production or the traditional smallholders, they are surviving with the corn, uh, cassava, gergely, rain-fed crops that they can only uh, develop during the rain. And uh, the rest of the year, they don't have any other income. Then the bananas play a very important role because bananas is a production that you need people the whole year around. We have a 1,000 employees 
And if you mean that one employee have around seven, seven family members here in this country, so the impact is huge. The only work that they can have it along the year is the bananas. Thanks, Gladys. Back to Claudia. I asked why COVID, supply chain issues and conflict are so significant when we are explaining the global food system. I think all food consumers have become more aware of food price fluctuations. So uh, for the female farmer we talked about in Mozambique, she will spend 40 to 60 percent of her income on food, even so she is a producer of food. It's simply because she will not produce the the wide range of varieties of foods that she needs, sugar, oils, etc., meat, meat products, if she can afford them. And so why have we seen this food price inflations? As uh, I think you already mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which has led to this dramatic supply chain challenges. Uh, you mentioned conflict, exactly. Prices go up for, let's say, wheat or sunflower oil. And as a result, you know, people try to get other products and those prices then also go up as a secondary effect and impact. But there's, of course, many local conflicts, you know, across the world uh, from Venezuela and Latin America uh, to the Horn of Africa and and many localized conflicts. And, And so millions of people are subject to the local conflicts as well, in addition to the international impacts from the uh, war on Ukraine. The third factor is, of course, climate change. All of these um, triggered food price shocks, such as COVID-19 or the war in Ukraine, they're magnified by adverse uh, climate change impacts on food production, sometimes also transportation. Let's say when we have floods, we also can transport food as well uh, in flooded areas, but obviously droughts uh, from lack from lack of precipitation or delayed precipitation is a, is a further crisis multiplier that has also, I think, laid bare the fragility of our global food systems. Everyone is affected uh, by climate change impacts, but of course not equally. The Horn of Africa is again affected by an extreme drought. And of course here the impacts are really existential, so to say. So we have very high numbers of food insecure people, water insecure people, um, threats of famine, threats of severe food insecurity and starvation. Thanks, Claudia. Now, let's get the big picture on this complicated topic from the World Bank Group. I am Madhur Gautam. I am a lead agriculture economist with the Agriculture and Food Global Practice at the World Bank. And at the moment, I am leading the thematic team on public policies and expenditures at the World Bank. I asked Madhur to explain how he would characterize the global food system. The food system has done extremely well over the past 70 years. Starting in about the 1960s, where we faced prospects of widespread famines uh, and human suffering, food production has uh, increased tremendously. Uh, It is today at historically high levels. Food production has outpaced population growth, and this increase in production is directly attributable to the application of science and technology which has helped in boosting agricultural productivity. That is a rise in productivity that um, allows a much better use of human capital 
physical capital, irrigation infrastructure, as well as the development of markets and value chains. Um, that makes all of the inputs more productive in the sense you produce more with less. It has been a major contribution um, of science and technology, an application of science and technology that, that we have seen um, achieve this major outcome. That said, that remarkable progress notwithstanding, the battle to achieve enduring and uh, sustainable uh, food and nutrition security in all parts of the world and all people still remains a challenge. The biggest challenge um, is, is, which threatens the progress that we have made so far, is from climate change. And this is putting food security at a high risk, uh, not only in some parts of the world right now, but also looking forward in the coming decades for, for a much larger group of people. So despite a quadrupling of the global food production uh, since 1961 to 2020, the declining trend in global hunger started to plateau in 2011 and has been on the rise since 2017. Currently, FAO estimates that about 800 million people are undernourished. The global trends in malnutrition are another major source of concern. An estimated 45 million children under five, five years of age, suffer from wasting. 149 million uh, have stunted growth in development due to chronic lack of nutritious foods in their diets, while 39 million people are either obese or overweight. There are other enormous hidden costs generated as a result of how our global food system is currently organized and operates. The total of these hidden costs is estimated at about $12 trillion each year. And this includes about one third of agriculture is a source of one third of global greenhouse emissions. So this is the, the, the monetization of the impact on climate, um, as well as the impacts on, on, on in terms of widespread land degradation and the health costs driven by high prices of healthy foods, which drive consumers towards unhealthy foods and, and, and result in, um, in diseases and, and unhealthy outcomes. Mada's point there about nutrition, malnutrition and obesity, is very interesting. I wanted to find out more, so I decided to explore the impact of modern food systems on the Pacific region, specifically the Kingdom of Tonga, which has an issue with type 2 diabetes and obesity. Thank you. I'm Sunia Soakai, a Tongan national, but employed by the Pacific community. I'm Deputy Director for the Public Health Division. I met Sunir in Tonga a few years ago while exploring the uptick in rates of diabetes. He has a really interesting and personal story to tell. I asked him to explain. Yeah, I mean, probably the best example is to is to personalise it. I mean, my father passed away at the ripe age of 96 in 2018. My mother's still alive. She's 90 years old. They grew up in a society where everything was, was homegrown. Everything was fresh. They, they lived healthy, healthy lives. They ate fresh food basically every day. Food was boiled, uh, the root crops on the bottom and, and pe- uh, vegetables on the top. Um, fish or, or, or local uh, stock uh, that they ha- had reared. I was brought up in, in the 60, late 60s, 70s, and you could see the generational shift in dietary habits. Yeah? I was brought up on, on processed food, all imported with very, very little nutritional value. But it was ease of convenience. Anything that was imported was falsely seen as better than what was grown locally or available locally. So there's been a, a basically a, a shift in dietary habits in my lifetime, from my, my parents' generation to mine. I got up to a weight of 162 
kilograms. Yeah. And, and I knew if I continued my lifestyle, um, I would orphan my children. So I had to make some drastic decisions and I did. I am now down to about 94 kilograms. My father was a farmer. Yeah. So again, um, his generation, um, every household basically had a had what we call a town allotment and a farm allotment. And the expectations was that you would use your your farm allotment to grow your own uh, food crops um, and, and live off of the land. And again, over the years, um, commercialization happened. Small businesses uh, were encouraged. Again, a good thing. Um, so there again was a shift away from farming and, and fishing. And most of the, the root crops in, in Tonga are very expensive because of the supply. Very small supply, but the demand for, for yams, for sweet potatoes, for tapioca, the prices are, are high. And then inevitably, people have to look for alternative foodstuff, uh, processed noodles, canned products yeah, as a means to, to survive from one day to the other. Again, on, from a commercial perspective, the Pacific has very good fishing stocks. So there's been a shift to cater for the export market. And the local market is very, very limited because all that high value food and, and, and fruit and vegetables are exported. And there's very little left for the local market. Sunia, climate change is something we hear about all the time. Can you give me a bit of a perspective on what it means to talk about climate change when we're talking about the Pacific region and Pacific food systems? Climate change is real in the Pacific. I mean, we grapple with this day in, day out. And the recognition between climate change, food, health, is at the forefront of national considerations, yeah? It has to be a whole of government, whole of society approach. In theory, very, very, very um, attractive, but uh, at the implementation level, a challenge. And what about the link between obesity and also malnutrition? Yeah, I think uh, having talked about obesity, there are also elements of undernourishment in the Pacific, yeah? Or undernutrition. And, and we see this in the form of stunting, which uh, obviously has an impact on, on, the, on the child's uh, growth and persists and persist throughout their life, really. Nutrient deficiencies, yeah? Uh, and these deficiencies are mostly in, in micronutrients, such as vitamin C and folate. A lot of the attention is, is sort of focused on obesity, but, but we are also hit by the triple burden here. You have malnutrition, you have stunting, uh, micronutrient deficiencies, um, and obesity. Which is quite sad because we are rich in the Pacific in terms of, of our, our sea resources and also our agricultural resources. But we still see under, under nutrition. I wanted to hear more about how we can improve the health of global food systems. And of course, people. Back to MADA. First and foremost is a need for recognition and acceptance that the business as usual is not acceptable. Uh, we need more food as, as the population is expected to continue to grow at least to 2050. And we need better quality, more nutritious, nutritious food. But we must do this in a manner that is much more resilient than, than we have been uh, able to do in the, in the past. And also to make sure that uh, agriculture production is more sustainable than it has been. What this requires is a major transformation of our global, national, and local food systems, which are proving to be not fit for purpose in their current form. A, a transformative change 
towards a food system that delivers better outcomes for people, uh, economies, and the planet needs a, maker, a major makeover. The critical question here is, certainly there are policies and support in place. The question is uh, whether the current support that is provided to agriculture provides the right kinds of incentives to drive the actions uh, needed for the type of transformation that we want. The answer to this question, based on recent analyses, the latest analyses that we have, is an emphatic no. One key shift needed, therefore, therefore, is to redirect or realign or repurpose the policies and support currently provided to agriculture to guide it along the transformation path we desire. Recent estimates show that farmers receive only 35 cents in, uh, of each dollar in public support and public spending, so this has to change. But the good news is there are options for governments to repurpose current agricultural support. For example, support could be provided to incentivize adaptation and uptake of technologies, new technologies that have already shown promise, such as cattle feed additives that reduce greenhouse gas emissions, or for rice production techniques that reduce methane emissions, or production practices that contribute to soil health. All of these also contribute to increased productivity and in farmer incomes. The second major source of financing is private investments. Improved and more balanced policies or improved and better balanced policies would also encourage private, uh, greater private investment in, food, in the food system. And public financing can also be used uh, more strategically to help reduce the risks of private sector investments that meet higher social and environmental standards to strengthen the food value, food value chains. These would reduce the cost wedge between uh, producers and consumers and reduce the huge amounts of food loss and waste along the food value chains, which currently amounts to nearly one third of the total food that we produce. And part of thinking differently about the way that food can be produced is through technology. The sound you're hearing now is of a drone Drones like this one, which I recorded in Tanzania a couple of years ago, are increasingly being used as tools for data collection through mapping and in tandem with AI. They're also used in farming for remote sensing, for planting of seeds, for spraying of pesticides and fertilizer. I tracked down one young Nigerian farmer who is passionate about the use of technology. He founded a company called Integrated Aerial Precision and he's often nicknamed the Flying Farmer. All right, so my name is Femi Adekoya. I am a Nigerian, um, living and working in Nigeria. I actually started as a teenager passionate about agriculture. A seed of maize or corn can be planted and you get hundreds of seeds back. Uh, in matter of weeks, I mean, that to me shows that there is abundance and multiplication that you can be able to be economically liberated. I asked Femi to explain to me some of the uses of drones on the farm. People say data is a new word, and it is actually true for agriculture. And this is what te um, drone technology, a technology like drone, uh, is actually delivering to us. Ability to be able to gather information, information about the land terrain, so we can be able to use drones to map the land, understand our terrain. How prone is this land to flooding? How can we actually manage um, irrigation? I mean, irrigation design or drainage design. Plants can now talk. Because now we can be able to see spectral signature from plants. Farmers can now be able to get information before they can get yield insight, even before they, they harvest. Prior to harvesting, that informs them, keeps them informed in terms of market planning and also my negotiations. And therefore, he can be able to save fertilizers. So if he knows that he has 70% germination, it simply means that he will just have 
have to apply 70% of fertilizer onto its field and um, apply pesticide in a more efficient manner, saving water. And also another advantage of using drones to spray, you can just sit at your office, perhaps sit at the edge of the field, and then you, you're not exposed to, um, to, to pesticides, your herbicide, you know, and whatever um, illness that they can, that can cause, thereby safeguarding their, their health and safety. Uh, in terms of labor saving, you know, now with farmers all over the world, it's not only Africa, we have labor shortage, you know, due to migration from a rural environment, due to the impact of COVID-19, due to civil unrest, due to a lot of things. You know, labor shortage is also in agriculture. So we need um, technologies that help us to be able to efficiently produce even in the in the midst of these. Femi is so enthusiastic about the future of farming and prospects for young farmers in Nigeria and across the continent. So does he think that technology is changing the perception of farming as a career for young people? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I can. <laughs> that's, that's my first answer. I have seen uh, a massive openness of open-mindedness of you to say, wow, they see agriculture as okay now with this technology, agriculture is no more back-wrecking. It is now what I can now apply engineering, I can now apply data science, I can now apply artificial intelligence. With technology, we are, we are changing the game. And this is actually attracting the youth. And like I said, we are actually doing this. They, 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 they also want to help the community. They also want to make economic gain and also build a noble and decent career. Thanks, Femi. Let's return to Claudia. What does she think about technology and its potential and how far we've already come? Yeah, so technologies clearly have been essential to achieve, you know, the current agricultural production growth that we have achieved. We don't necessarily can call it sustainable because we also have environmental degradation, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the technological change that we have achieved. But at the same time, we have preserved large areas of tropical forests that would have to have been cut down with the current population to feed the current population if we had not had the technologies that that are already in place. At the same time, I think the agricultural sector receives very little um, investment as we we compare it to the energy sector or or some other sectors. And hopefully this will change with with this growing uh, number and quite rapid number of of food price crisis uh, that we have seen just over the last 15 years. In terms of where investment has to go, you know, it's really many different areas, starting with additional investment in crop uh, and livestock breeding, you know, to make these crops uh, and also animal breeds more climate resilient. Uh, It's also important to invest in these associate technologies or supporting um, technologies such as, for example, irrigation. In the late 70s, these pumps were developed, I think first in Japan, then India, and then China. And now you can find them pretty much anywhere in the world. So I can go and buy my own diesel pump, for example, you know, and, and there's also new well drilling technology, sink my own well, and then I'm set up for irrigating. And more recently, we have seen a very large development of solar irrigation pumps. So those, of course, remove the greenhouse gas uh, emissions that we have seen with the uh, diesel pumps and petrol pumps. So those solar pumps are, you know, a new technology that I would say is a game-changing technology. But of course, in, you know, in some areas where 
water resources simply do not exist or where conflict is too extreme or areas that are too remote. And in those areas, you know, either you need some, you know, just direct income support or sometimes, you know, just stop farming altogether. So what's the World Bank Group doing to address the myriad of issues at play? Back to Mada. Under our Food Systems 2030 program, the World Bank is supporting countries to transform their food systems with a goal to achieve zero hunger by 2030. The program is funded by a number of donors, including Germany, the UK, the European Commission, uh, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We are working with 25 countries, seeking country-specific entry points for repurposing agricultural policies and support, uh, creating business models to stimulate private sector financing, promoting climate-smart agriculture, applying digital innovations, and uh, develop strategies to make healthy, uh, nutritious diets more available, more affordable and available. But there is no one-size-fits-all solution. Each country has its own set of challenges and needs to identify options and strategies to achieve its desired outcomes. The World Bank is putting a very heavy emphasis on supporting governments and partners by facilitating knowledge sharing on policies and investments that work to transform the global food system. We also provide technical support to identify country-specific evidence-based options for repurposing. And then we stand ready, and in some countries we are doing, providing uh, financial support uh, to implement the identified uh, preferred options uh, through World Bank finance operations uh, to realize the promise of a holistic food system transformation. Madder agrees with Claudia that there's been an underinvestment in technology, and that's something that needs to change, and urgently. Technology is one of the key drivers, and the fact that currently there is, at the global level, a, an underinvestment in technology, and this includes both science-based R&D, agricultural research and development, but also, um, and it's, it's taking off now, uh, but bringing it to the farmers in terms of the digital technology and the digital solutions that help overcome a lot of the traditional uh, constraints that we had in terms of agricultural development. It is critical that we need we need increase our, our investments in uh, innovation, uh, research and innovation. It is critical that we start to prioritize sustainability, which has so far not been the main area of focus for uh, our research systems. These systems have traditionally been focused on delivering higher production and productivity to deliver food security and mostly primarily in the form of cereals um, and and caloric uh, needs of people. That was important in the 60s, 70s, but I think we are at a completely different stage now. And I think the research agenda also needs to adapt to the current uh, modern circumstances. The war in Ukraine accelerated trends and focused global attention to the food system that we all rely on. But food prices and global hunger were already on the rise even before the war. We've explored a few of the complex and interconnected factors at play and some of the solutions to creating a sustainable future without hunger. I'll leave the last thought to Sunia Suakai, talking to me from Fiji, but reflecting on his home country of Tonga, as well as the wider region. I think it's not all gloom and doom. I mean, the 2021 UN Food System Summit sort of, um, again, tried to accelerate and set the stage for global food system transformation. One size doesn't fit all, as you would appreciate. Um, And the Pacific can't do this without um, the support of our partners. Um, And we look to... Uh, the World Bank, we look to DFAT Australia, MFAT New Zealand um, to support um, regional priorities to achieve um, 
food and, and nutritional security. Thanks so much to all of my guests, Sunia, Mada, Claudia, Femi and Gladys. You've been listening to the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Sarah Trino and we'll be back soon. <laughs>